to 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. And there's a couple passages you need to put a slip of paper or your fingers in. Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. I am basing the outline of our text today and using the same outline that we had last week, except instead of deacons, we're looking at elders. The outline will be based on 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, with Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus 1 as supplementary passages. We're calling this God's Blueprint for the Church Elders. And we're doing this For the same reason we looked at the office of deacons last week, to prevent unnecessary hardship and conflict and strife and heartache from having biblically undefined job descriptions and standards and qualifications for those who would hold the offices that God has put in the church. A lot of problems can be prevented when we take a few moments to look at what God has said. It's been said an ounce of cure is worth, wait, no, an ounce of prevention is worth a what? Pound of cure. That's right. So, again, we're going to use the same outline looking at the reason why God has appointed elders in his church. The reason will be in 1 Peter 5. One and then the first couple words of verse two, and then verse two will will lead us into God's requirements of the elder. That'll be verses two and three, with a very quick, very expedient journey through First uh, uh, Timothy three and Titus one, and then we'll close out by looking at God's reward for elders in verse four. Let's first look at God's reason for elders. God's reason for elders. Peter writes in verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And this is what he exhorts them to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. I don't need to go too in-depth into this passage because we we went through this about a year and a half ago. But I want you to see something very interesting. Peter is speaking to the elders. And what does he tell them to do? To shepherd and to exercise oversight. Oversight. That is the word for elder, the word, the verb form of the word pastor, and the verb form of the word bishop, all talking about the same person, the same office, the same man. So the pastor is an elder, is a bishop. And you can rearrange those words in any order. And uh, real quick, look over at Acts 20, 17, verse 17. Just to, just to show this is, this is uh, uh, unanimous among the apostolic teaching. This isn't just Peter telling us. Acts 20, verse 17. 
Luke writes from Miletus, he being Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him who? The elders of the church. Now look in, down in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, the word for bishop, to do what? To shepherd. The elders have been made overseers or bishops to the, to the end that they shepherd or so that they shepherd the church of God. So from both Peter and Paul, Elders are called to shepherd the flock of God and to exercise oversight. And there's, there's a long list of things that pastors and elders and bishops use. And I, I'm really, I'm not going to use the word bishop really throughout the rest of the message because we don't really use that in our denomination. Um, if you were Anglican or, or uh, from another denomination, uh, that might be in your vocabulary. We don't use that, so I'm not going to use it. I want you to see they're all the same person. And especially in our context, pastors and elders, the same thing, same person. And while there's a long list of things that they do, believe me, I had a long list. And I'm going to spare that to you. Uh, Here is a summary. Here is an efficient job description of what they do. Elders shepherd and oversee. So all three of those words together. Elders shepherd and oversee God's people by doing four things. And I got this from Alexander Strzok's summary uh, of, of the office. They lead, they feed, they protect, and they care for God's people. They lead, they feed, they protect, and they care for God's people. That's what elders do through shepherding and exercising oversight. And the reason that God appoints elders in the church is so that his people may be, surprise, led, fed, protected, and cared for. Now, I think that is a a good summary description of about the 40 or 50 things that I found pastors and elders and overseers do. And I think it would be worth going through that list sometime, but this is not that day. But the point is is that God appoints these men to lead, to feed, to protect, and to care for. Because in appointing these men, these qualified and trustworthy men to do those things, he's he's providing men in his church who do for us what he himself does for us. us. And you see this, uh, I think, exemplified in Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. David writes, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh is my shepherd. He, and I'm just borrowing from some verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he guides me in the path of righteousness. David was led by God. He was led to green pastures where he could eat and quiet waters where he could drink. And there was a table set before him. David was fed by God. David had no fear, even though he was led through the valley of death's shadow, or even though he was led to where enemies were in his presence. David was protected by God. David said that his head was anointed with oil. Most likely that was medicinal. So David was cared for by 
God. So I want you to see that in appointing elders and pastors in the church, God is giving his people qualified and trustworthy men who are merely acting as an extension of God's own care for his people. Now, as I said earlier, a whole message is really needed uh, in order to adequately and thoroughly discuss the duties of the elders. I would not be happy uh, uh, with uh, just hydroplaning over everything they do And I don't think you would be happy if I took the time. So suffice to say for this morning's message, I want you to see that these duties are required of all elders. A shepherd did all of these things. And so all pastors, all elders are called to shepherd. And it may may look different. It may... Uh, look different from elder to elder, especially uh, uh, as one elder may may be called uh, and given an office and have office hours, and he would preach regularly from the pulpit. Another elder would be what we call a lay elder, and he assists in the shepherding and and, and had, bears the responsibility of of leading and caring for the church, even though he has a job that he has to go to Monday through Friday from nine to five. The Uh, The responsibilities will be carried out in different ways uh, to different degrees and different measures, but all the elders will share in the responsibilities and in the authority of leading the church and caring for God's people. In the final analysis, I want you to see that elders are pastors and pastors are elders. And to, to suggest, to say that an elder doesn't touch or doesn't encroach upon the pastoral responsibilities that a pastor has, that is a contradictory statement. All elders are to shepherd. All elders are to oversee God's people in the local church. That's the reason God appoints elders. Now, let's look at God's requirements for elders. We're going to continue into verse 2, going into verse 3, and then we're going to I think we're going to try to hydroplane as best we can while doing justice to the text in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And as we go through these, I want you to look at them at each qualification. And, and, and just fair warning, we are not going to look at each word as much, uh, with as much depth and scrutiny as I would like. So you're welcome. But I want you to look at these things positively and negatively. What do I mean by that? I want you to ask why God requires these qualities among those who would be elders in the church. What do these qualifications ensure or guarantee will happen positively? Negatively, what would a lack of these qualifications cause? If a man lacks these qualities, what might that lead to? What might be down the road in the life of that church? So in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, we're going to look at the required qualities in his ministry. Peter continues, elders, he's exhorting the elders to, to shepherd and to exercise oversight. And this is what's required of their shepherding and oversight He says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. The elder must minister voluntarily. He must minister 
with sincerity. He must not minister. He must not be made or forced or coerced into doing his work. He can't do it under compulsion. If if a man has to be pushed and prompted in order to do the job of ministry, there is a problem in that church. Many needs in that church are not going to be met. And those that are met are probably going to be met poorly. And then he continues, neither for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And this is a rare occasion. I, I'm not satisfied with the rendering of the NASB. Um, the, a better word would be determination. He must not minister for sordid gain, but with determination. The, the elder must have a desire. He must have a drive, an inner drive to do the work for the sake of, of the work and for the sake of the one who has appointed him to the work. He can't call in sick or just neglect his duties because he doesn't feel like it or because every day is a Monday. And he can't just rise to the occasion. His head can't turn and he, all of a sudden him become faithful and diligent because he sees an opportunity for, as the King James says, filthy lucre. And and that word actually does come down into our English, lucrative. But he can't be prompted, he can't be motivated, his head can't turn because of an opportunity for filthy lucre. I love the way the King James puts that. Neither lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The, The elder, the pastor, must be exemplary he must be an example of what it means to be a disciple of jesus christ let me ask you a question did you ever see the lord jesus christ lord his authority over his disciples on the contrary we saw him teach uh, instruct them not to lord uh, any authority over others but rather to serve the minister must be an example of that he must exemplify the attitude of Christ who, who laid his rights aside and came to serve. And he must not exemplify, he must not be an example of those numbskull, dull disciples uh, pre-resurrection who it seems that every opportunity they're constantly trying to one-up each other. They're always trying to gain a foothold or an advantage over one another. The minister must be exemplary. He must imitate Christ. And so what kind of a man would be a good candidate to fulfill those ministerial requirements? Well, Paul gives us a number of character requirements in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I would encourage you to turn there. 1 Timothy 3, 1, and I didn't press the button. Sorry, Don. Pray for me. Paul says, it is a trust. Forget it. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires, desires, dreams for, uh, wants to pursue, or reaches for the office of overseer, that's the word bishop, it is a fine work he desires to do. The first requirement, he must actually desire the office. He can't be placed into the office. He can't be pushed into the office against his will because somebody else thinks he would be a great person to do the job. 
or, or even because we really need somebody to step up and be a pastor or be an elder. He must have a desire to do the work. He must want to do the work. And so the man who would aspire to be an elder then, Paul says and continues in verse 2, he must be above reproach. We looked at this last week. Very same quality for the deacon in verse 10. And uh, he'll also say this in Titus 1, 7. And this is, a, this is a quality, this is a character of a man that leaves no room for blame. He, he, his established pattern of character, the way he conducts himself, his life, his lifestyle, his mannerism, the way he speaks, the things he does, uh, doesn't leave a place for a charge or an accusation to land. The way he lives his life dispels accusations. And maybe you know people who have an upstanding character and, and you hear some, an allegation said about them and you go, I'm sorry, that guy cannot do what you're saying. That is the way he must be. Uh, if, if accusation, if criticism is a fuzzy tennis ball, the man wears no Velcro. Accusations don't stick to him. And this doesn't mean that he's perfect, but it means that he guards himself. He's a guarded man. He guards his speech. He guards his actions, uh, his associations. And when he does do wrong, every, every man is, pr- is prone to sin at some point. Uh, he is expedient. It is, he is a quick man to make things right, to admit his wrong, and to reconcile to whomever needs to be, whoever the wrong was done against. He is a man who is quick to, to admit his wrong and to reconcile, and to walk in repentance. Then he must also be the husband of one wife. We looked at this last week. Does this talk about divorce? Does this mean the elder must never have been divorced? Those who were here last week? No. Because if it did, there would be no elders or deacons in Corinth. He is a, he rather, it means he is a one-woman man. He is a man who is fiercely loyal to his wife. His eyes don't follow other women as they walk by. And his mind doesn't wander where it shouldn't. It, and I like the way Alexander Strzok puts it. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be quoting from Strzok quite a bit. And for that reason, I, w- I would uh, encourage you, if you are, if you would like to study this on your own, this is, this is the authority. Well, I mean, this is the authority. But this is, this is an excellent book by Alexander Strzok, Biblical Eldership, another good one, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons by Nine Marks, much more readable, much more in-depth. All right. But as, as Alexander Strzok says, the husband of one wife, the one-woman man, is a man who can say before God, who knows his thoughts and who knows what he did last night, that man could say he is sexually pure. Then Paul continues, he must be temperate. And this has the idea of being self-controlled, of being sober and level-headed, well-balanced. There's a number of words that, that in, the, in the rest of these lists that are basically synonyms with this word, temperate. And it literally means to be unmixed, unmixed with wine. But, and it certainly does... Uh, include the idea of being in, uh, of not being intoxicated, but it really goes beyond just uh, being uh, abstaining from drunkenness, but really anything that causes impairment. 
the, the temperate man should be reliable. The temperate man should be trustworthy, inherently and regularly trustworthy with responsibility. He must not be prone to undermine his life by being impulsive, by being irresponsible or being undisciplined. Strock says, an undisciplined man has little resistance to sexual lust, anger, slothfulness, a critical spirit or other carnal desires. He is easy prey for the devil. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. He must be temperate. Next, Paul says, the elder, the would-be elder must be prudent. And a better word, uh, I think a word we use more often would be sensible. He must be sensible. He must have a sound mind. He, he, he doesn't allow his desires or him, his impulses to get the better of him. He's disciplined. He's clear-minded. He's intentionally thoughtful. And he's not easily tempted or goaded, or he doesn't e- easily fall into foolish behavior or foolish choices. He, he's not a man who often says, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? He exemplifies Ecclesiastes 1.10. Dead flies make a perfumer, perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. And those of you, you know that one little Simple act of folly can undo years of building up a reputation. Ask anybody who's ever had a Twitter account. (laughs) Next, respectable. And this is uh, very similar to uh, uh, the deacon's qualification of of, uh, dignity or or, uh, respect of uh, 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 honorable. Uh, He is well arranged. He is... He just has an impressive aura about him. He's, he's well organized. He has charisma. He has charm. He, just the way he is, the way he sounds, and, what he, and how he does things causes people to admire him, causes people to want to be around him. And the way he conducts himself, the way he speaks, and what he says and what he doesn't say causes people to just look up to him and to, to, to trust him and to follow his example. Everything he does, even the little things, as well as the big things, everything he does builds uh, a, uh, a, him a reputation of quality character. He must be respectable. Next, he must be hospitable. This is literally love of strangers. And no, it doesn't mean to love strange people. It, it, uh, in in the, the original context, what meant uh, was generally used to uh, to speak of those who welcomed their, opened their home to welcome travelers uh, and strangers into the home. Typically, it would have been Christian, Christians from other cities who were visiting. You didn't have Motel 6s back then. Um, You stay, when you went somewhere, you stayed in people's homes. And so the idea of opening up your home to provide lodging or food uh, taking care of them, uh, and basically being generous, being gracious to people who you don't know and really aren't in a position to pay you back or return the favor. It's being gracious and generous not because you have to, but because you can. 
and because you want to. And then the last word in verse 2, he must be able to teach. Primary distinguishing quality of the elder that the deacon does not have. He must be able to teach. Now, this doesn't mean that he has to be a master teacher. This doesn't mean that he must have the skills of Socrates and Aristotle and in his oration and his arguments, but he has to demonstrate with some ability that he can understand and communicate biblical truths. He must be able to feed the flock of God, whether it's serving brisket like Gordon Ramsay or top ramen like me. The shepherd, the elder has to demonstrate that he has some skill with the Bible. He has to demonstrate that he can prepare something and present it and give it to the church. A church whose elders can't teach will only learn one thing, how to waste everybody's time and how to feel very religious doing it. And and this implies the necessity, the crucial non-negotiable necessity that learning plays in the corporate worship service. Going to worship, showing up to church, and worshiping and, and going through the motions, that is not enough. You must learn something. You must be learning. You must, as Romans 12, 2 says, you must be transformed according to the renewing of your traditions, your outer Christian uh, uh, veneer, according to the renewing of your what? Louder? Mind. According to the renewing of your mind. You must learn something from the Bible. The elder must be able to help you learn it. Verse 3, he must not be addicted to wine. This means, we looked at this last week, he must not be a drunkard. Like all Christians, the elder and pastor has the liberty to drink, but not if it's a stumbling block for him, not if it's a stumbling block for anyone in his family, not if it's a stumbling block for anybody that he welcomes into his home or... uh, or, or sees him drinking. He has the liberty to drink. That means he can, but it also means that he doesn't have to. It can't be, the alcohol can't be what turns his head, just as filthy lucre might turn the head of someone else. He must be a man who is willing to forego his Christian liberties for the sake of building up and edifying others. Next one, he must not be pugnacious. Interesting word. It literally means not a striker, and that's not the, that's not the position in soccer. He must not be a violent man. He can't be a quarrelsome man. He, he can't ha- have an impulse to, to, to get into the fight and to, and to prove his point, to make his point with, with his body, with his fists. Um, those of you who would remember Hanna-Barbara, Hanna he can't be like Scrappy. Or, or, Lo- or uh, uh, remember a Henry Hawk from, from Looney Tunes. He can't be a, one of those guys, let me at him, let me at him. Let me, I'll show you what's worth. Let me at him. He can't, can't be like that. 
So not being pugnacious, but, and here's the opposite, gentle. He must be gentle. He must be forbearing. He must make room for others. He must be gracious. Next, he must be peaceable. The elder must not have a morbid interest in controversy, in arguing, in debating. He doesn't have a desire to utterly dismantle and destroy his opponents. I remember when we were going through church history, there were a a number of guys who just had a desire. It wasn't enough to just uh, uh, prove his point and to prove his opponent was wrong. I remember of uh, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, Nick Needham says he, he had, it wasn't enough just to prove his point, he had to destroy his opponent as a man. The elder candidate cannot be like that. He can't be quarrelsome with his fists, he can't be quarrelsome with his mouth. Or his Facebook posts, or his tweets, or his whatever. I don't know how you'd be pugnacious with your um, Instagram, but if you can do it, don't. Uh, last Last part in verse 3, he must be free from the love of money. He must be free from the love of money. Money can't be what perks him up. Money can't be what motivates or drives him. Money can't be, uh, money must not be able to get him to break the rules or to compromise. It's a sober truth. You look at church history You even look at the, just open the newspaper. Do they still print newspapers? Open your tablet and read the news. How many Christian pastors and ministers do we we see getting caught in scandal for, for embezzling? Judas wasn't the last disciple to betray Jesus for a sack of 30 coins. Must be free from the love of money. Verse four, he must be one who manages his household well. Paul tells us what he means by that. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. There's a very common tendency, typical tendency, that a man who's a poor head of the house will be a poor head of whatever else he does. And a man man who has poor control, poor management in the home will have the same in the workplace. And the opposite's true. Generally speaking, a man who does well in the home will do well otherwise. Faithful with a little, faithful with a lot. And that's exactly the argument that Paul makes. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at verse 5. If a man doesn't know how to manage his household, lesser not in value, but generally, general difficulty. If you can't manage a few little people, the, the, the few little people that you're responsible for bringing into this world and got their bad habits from you to begin with, if you can't effectively manage them, if you can't be a, a, a respectable leader to them, what hope do you have in managing people who have all of their own problems? Argument from the lesser to the greater. Manage, be faithful with a little, be faithful with a lot. He cannot, verse 6, he cannot be a new convert. This word means newly planted. Someone who hasn't had time for their roots to grow, they aren't firmly settled, they haven't developed a, a mature self-control that comes with age, are tend, uh, tend to have disastrous futures. 
And some of you may know uh, there are claims that this is happening to Duvall Incarnation right now. I know uh, some of you have, uh, in the workplace, you, you have seen enterprises that grow too fast for their infrastructures to support it, to adequately support them. And sooner or later, big problems arise that logistically are just overwhelming. Paul tells us in verse 6 that this could happen when a young man in the faith advances far too rapidly for his good. If he's put in a position that he hasn't been trained for, he will find out that he's in way way over his head and maybe by God's grace he will do the job well. Uh, maybe he'll crash and burn, but if he succeeds and does the job well, Paul tells us the likelihood is that he will become what? Conceited. Look at what my hands have done. Look what I did. I turned the, I've been here for a year, two years, three years, and I turned this church around. He'll become conceited. He'll be impressed by his own accomplishments, his own talents, his own self-worth, self-absorbed with his own importance, and he'll be thinking far too highly of himself and far too lowly of who? Well, of others and the one who is behind the church, God. Last time I heard, it was Jesus who promised, I will build my church. He will become a proud man. Paul tells us, That pride was the snare that caused the devil to fall. Look at the last phrase of verse 6. If he he does this, he's he's newly planted, and if he succeeds, or if he has any kind of fruit, in all likelihood he'll become conceited and what? Fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now everything so far have been qualities that must be seen by those inside the church By all standards, most people outside the church could care less. But the elder must also have a commendable reputation outside the church, in the unchristian community. Look what Paul says in verse 7. He must have a good reputation on social media. Well, actually, I, I meant that sarcastically, but I guess that does count, doesn't it? He must have a good reputation with those outside the church outside the church. Nothing harms a church's capacity at being salt and light than having its pastor or one or multiple of its leaders known for being a a hypocrite and a compromiser. Doesn't the world just love it when Christians prove to be compromisers and hypocrites? Nothing undermines the gospel like that. People must be offended if people must be disappointed or or less impressed with the Christian elder. Let it be because of Christ. Let it be because the elder faithfully resembles Christ. Satan loves disgracing God's name and God's work in building his church by trapping and ensnaring church leaders in sin before a world that watches and never seems to forget. This is true. If you look at biblical history, church history, generally speaking, 
even with good leaders, that you, you had some good fruit and bad fruit. But when, when, when compromised, unqualified men were put into position of leadership, you see this in the judges, you see this in the kings, you see this in the priests. Unqualified leaders definitely produces an abundance of poor people, poor morally, spiritually poor. Paul says he will fall. He said, don't let a newly planted man uh, uh, get into office so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, look at verses 6 and 7. You notice that they're the only criteria. These are the only qualifications where Paul lists, where Paul describes the consequence. You know, for the others, I think he leaves it for us to figure out what would a man who's not temperate, what would a man, what would a man who doesn't, who's not fiercely loyal to his wife uh, or, or any of these other qualities, what would that man who lacks those things cause in the church? Paul actually tell, described some consequences. And I'm wondering, I think it's reasonable to, to conclude that perhaps the, uh, the men who caused Eph- the church in Ephesus to become a wreck were disqualified in these terms. I think, these, I think the, the people at the church of, Eph- uh, of Ephesus, uh, who Timothy would share the, uh, his letter with, I think he's, they saw these consequences all around them. All right, Titus 1, 6 through 9. Titus 1, 6 through 9. First one, above reproach. We covered that already. Husband of one wife. Covered that already. Uh, Children who believe. Children who believe. This is controversial because some take it to mean that they must, uh, the elder must have believing children. Face value, that's what it looks like it says. But I don't think that's what it means. I don't think it... The, the elder to be qualified must have saved, regenerate, gospel-believing children. I think that means they and their, um, that the children and that, generally speaking, the elder's house must be uh, well-managed. Strock says uh, faithful really shouldn't be translated believing, but rather faithful or trustworthy or dutiful or responsible. And here's why I, I, I say that. Not just, not just because Strzok says it. Good, effective management is what Paul says uh, back in 1 Timothy 3, 4 for the elder and uh, a qualification for the deacon in verse 12. He must be a good manager of his home and children. Um, a, he, the elder candidate must be an effective leader in the home. He must have the respect. And things must generally be in order, not in chaos and ruin and in neglect. Another question, another point would be, what happens when a, when a pastor and his wife have a new baby? Are you going to assume that baby is saved or believed? Are you going to give him, are you going to give that child um, five years, six years, seven years to, to demonstrate that they're saved? Because that would be an awful lot of pressure on a kid to pretend like they're a Christian. Maybe you even saw that in, some church, in a church growing up. The, the pressure to conform to the expectations of being the preacher's kid? Or are you going to, uh, uh, if you only have one pastor in the church, one elder in the church, and they have a kid, are you going to uh, 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 
put them on a a period of prohibition, kick them out until the kid does become saved. What are you going to do? Paul doesn't tell us that. Those, Those are logical questions that would come up, I think, if Paul means they must be believing. Rather, I, I think another, I think a compelling reason to conclude that is that Paul tells us, I think, what he means. That they are to be faithful in that they look at look at verse six. They are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I think that's what Paul means by being faithful or by being uh, believing, which would be better translated faithful. Dissipation, we don't use that word much, means debased, uncontrollable, really the idea of crazy, crazily, wildly uncontrollable, off the deep end. The elders, and and this goes in line with uh, the requirement to manage one's house, manage one's children. The elders' kids can't be off the deep end. You wouldn't want to entrust a man with the care and oversight of many families when his neglect has led his children to become uncontrollable, rebellious ne'er-do-wells. He needs to effectively, he needs to show that he can lead on a micro scale before being put in a position where he's leading on a macro scale. Verse 7, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. As God's steward. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter uh, 5, shepherd the flock of God. It's God's flock, shepherd the flock that God has put in your midst. The pastor and the, and the elder is a steward. He's not the owner. He is one who is responsible and accountable to the owner because the owner has put uh, a responsibility uh, into his care. And I think that's a very appropriate description of the elder. The church... The flock of God is not his, right? It's God's house. You are God's flock. You're not my flock. I don't own you. God owns you. I am, as, as a pastor and elder, I am caring for you on, at his uh, request, on his behalf. And here's, some, here's a few more stewardly attitudes The elder must not be self-willed. The elder must not be self-willed, stubborn, arrogant. He can't be a man who's pleased only with himself and with his ideas. He can't be a man who is not open to other people's counsel, other people's ideas. This is this is someone who's already made up their mind what they're going to be, what they're going to believe and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. It is his way or the highway, and ain't nobody's going to change his mind. Elder can't be self-willed. Strock says uh, the elder can't be headstrong, independent, self-assertive, and ungracious, particularly to anybody who has a different opinion. He can't. In other words, he can't be somebody who only surrounds himself with yes men. The elder needs to surround himself with men who will challenge him biblically. Remember, Peter did that with Paul on one occasion. This is, this is a man who will scatter God's sheep ultimately because of his unyielding, overbearing, and blindness to the feelings and opinions of others. He can't be self-willed. 
He must not be quick-tempered. Aristotle said this. I don't think I've ever quoted Aristotle before. Here we go. A a quick-tempered person loses no time getting angry. And they get angry with those they ought not, over things they ought not, at a frequency they ought not. So, elder ought not be quick-tempered. It means being easily provoked. It means having a short fuse. It means being ruled not by rational thought, not by logic, but by emotions, by feelings. Know anybody like that? They aren't easily uh, uh, overwhelmed by their immediate circumstances. They don't lose control when something doesn't go their way or when they're when they come across unexpected uh, uh, uh Expect that doesn't sound right. When when unexpected unexpectations hit them, or or what they do expect falls short, when they they're easily discouraged by disappointments, by heartache, by frustration, they feel overwhelmed by frustration. Rather, the the tempered person is in a sense well moored. He's emotionally anchored. Strock says. Since an elder must deal with the problems, with people and their problems, you know what a hothead will find? He will find plenty of fuel to add to his anger. Must not be addicted to wine. We covered that. Must not be pugnacious. Covered that. Means he must not look like a pug. Not fond of sordid gain. Covered that. He must not be attracted by filthy lucre. Five points. Uh, he must uh, he must be hospitable. Covered that. Uh, he must uh, verse eight. He must love what is good. This is very close to hospitality. Has the idea of, of one who loves good works. He he does what is good. He does what is helpful for his family, for his neighbor. Uh, not because he's compulsed to do it. Not because he must do it. Uh, but because he loves doing it. He loves to build up others he loves to do what blesses other people he loves to do what lifts other people up he loves to bless he loves to cover up sin he loves to 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 overlook wrong for the sake for the sake of forgiveness and for the sake of covering up sin he is kind he is socially responsible he is charitable the elder must love what is good uh, sensible covered that just or or uh, just or means righteous or lawful. Remember that these are all stewardly attitudes. God's steward must take care of God's flocks by God's standards with God's means. He is lawful. He is uh, uh, he's a man who recognizes and, and exemplifies the saying that the end doesn't just justify. The means there's there's a right way to go about producing the right results. He doesn't cut corners, and he doesn't improve on God's wisdom. Now we we talked about the uh, sufficiency of where Daniel go. Daniel talked about the sufficiency of Scripture this morning. He's a man who who trusts in the sufficiency of Scripture, and he doesn't try to add or change or correct or fix what God has said in his words. Uh, He's devout. He's pious. He's 
holy, uh, the devout man recognizes that there's that that God and the world have different standards, and he does he places no effort in obfuscating the the distinction between the different standards. Some of you may recall the seeker movement of the '90s. The the seeker friendly churches they tried to bridge that divide. They tried to bridge that gap, and they tried to reach what what one called the unchurched by bringing the church down to the world standards and level and try to in, bring people in using the worldly means. And I think that's why one of the main reasons why we have so many man-centered churches today that entertain goats by appealing to felt needs rather than feed the sheep the pure and simple word of God. That's why we have people that have a hard time humbling themselves and have a hard time exalting God to the place he needs to be in our hearts and minds. If the elder is to disciple others into being devout, he himself must be devout. He must be, in a sense, be a holy man. Uh, Self-controlled, covered that, basically means temperate, disciplined, balanced. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. This is similar to the deacon's charge to hold the mystery of the faith in 1 Timothy 3, 9. Whereas the deacon needs to be settled in the truth of the gospel, the elder has to be settled in a much wider, a much broader body of Christian belief. Notice he says, the teaching, verse 9. The teaching, the, the teaching of the apostles. And it's not their word, what did Jesus tell the, apostles, tell the disciples in Matthew 28, 20? Go and teach, go into the nations and teach all men, uh, 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 disciple, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them uh, your opinions. Teach them whatever is prevalent in, the, in that day. What did Jesus tell them to do? Teach them everything I have commanded So it's not the apostle, just the apostles' teaching, it's the teaching of Christ. To what end? Why must the elder be settled? Why must he hold fast the faithful word? Why must he hold fast to the teaching? Look at verse 9. So that he will be able to do two things. Exhort, that means to, to urge, to appeal, to encourage, uh, as Daniel said earlier this morning, to motivate he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. That's basically meaning right doctrine, healthy doctrine. And you can see in verses 10 and 11 why that's important. But probably what was happening in Titus's day. Strock says, a man who doesn't tenaciously adhere to orthodox biblical doctrine doesn't qualify himself to lead God's household because he who is himself in error and unbelief will mislead God's people. Such a man is no match for deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1. And I want you to remember, this is required for just the preaching pastor, some of the elders, how many of the elders need to meet this qualification? All the elders. Be it the lead preaching elder or the lay elder. Now, so, okay, that was trying to hydroplane. We've gone over the reason. 
for the office of elder, we've gone over briefly the requirements of the elders. What about God, what God says about the reward for elders? Go back to 1 Peter 5. And I can tell you, there are some precious rewards that a pastor and an elder may anticipate in this life. A pastor can sometimes be blessed to see God cause growth. The pastor can see the gospel change people's lives. The pastor can see sinners brought to repentance. The pastor can see broken marriages uh, reconciled and repaired. The pastor can see disciples, people who he's poured himself into. He can see them grow up to maturity. The pastor can feel the love and the appreciation of the flock that he ministers to week after week after week after week. But I want you to notice that Peter goes straight to the end game incentive, doesn't he? Peter goes to the reward that the pastor, that the faithful elder gets at the end. That's the reward given to him by Christ himself. Verse 4, 1 Peter 5, 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you, remember he's speaking to the elders you, you as you elders, you who are under shepherds, you who are overseers of my church, you will, uh, as if it was Christ saying it, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's as if Peter is saying on behalf of Christ to the elder, to the pastor who faithfully and dutifully does his work, victory day is not Sunday. It's not Sunday as soon as you finish preaching. Sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> Victory Day is not this week. Victory Day is not next week. Victory Day is not when you hit retirement or when your church becomes a mega church or any, or any other worldly standard of success in the ministry. Victory Day, reward day is coming on the last day. And beloved, it'll be and I speak to those who might aspire to be an elder, it is on that day and on that day alone when all labors, all sacrifices, all hardships, all the toil, and all the tears in pastoral life will be fully recognized and rewarded, not just by the saints, not just by the angels, not just by the people that you've ministered to, but by the one to whom it really matters that he recognizes it. That's the one who owns the flock. The elder will be recognized and rewarded by the chief shepherd himself in that day. Peter says that faithful elders receive a what? An unfading crown of glory. I have no idea what that looks like. But it's going to be good. The crown speaks to the laurel wreaths that would be awarded an athlete when he, when he won at the games. These were uh, made uh, uh, often of um, herbs or, 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 or um, vines. They wilted. They, they didn't last. These were not eternal crowns or, or laurels. They wilted. They faded. They decayed. There would be a time where they were no more. And they, were, no matter how 
wondrous they looked when they were presented and put on the athlete's head. A couple weeks later, days later, months later, that laurel is no more. Not so with the crown, with the unfading crown, the glorious crown that Christ will give the faithful elder. It isn't a crown made by gold. What's it, what, is it, what is its material? What is it made of? Does he say the unfading crown of gold? Unfading crown of glory. I don't know if this is speculation, but I think it is made of heavenly glory. It will be a crown that never fades, never goes away, that resembles heavenly glory. I think it will resemble Christ's own glory. Strock says of that day, lowly, unnoticed, hardworking elders who have faithfully shepherded God's flock, they may not have many earthly goods to, to show for a lifetime full of toil. And to be transparent, it is. But someday the chief shepherd will come and fully reward the under-shepherds who dutifully cared for his flock. That is a wonderful promise to the, to the office of elders. So, God's reason for elders or what? To put qualified, trustworthy, responsible men in your life who will feed you the word of God, who will lead you towards Christ-likeness, who will protect you from false doctrine and sin and care for you as God's representative. That's why God puts elders in the church. Lead, feed, protect, care for you. God's requirements for elders? Let's just say hi. And for good reason. Right? God's reward for the elders to be personally recognized and rewarded with heavenly glory by Christ himself at the end. The reason, the requirements, the reward. Now, I recognize this has been a lot of teaching, but this this gives you some application. So what? Right? I want you to see that pastors and elders share, they all share the same authority and responsibility to share and oversee the church. Peter made the appeal as a fellow elder before he threw in the apostle card. There is, elders are pastors. Elders are not assistants to the pastors. They're not subordinates to the pastors. They're not underlings, and they are certainly not yes-men to the pastors. Elders are pastors. There's no hierarchy of elders. Secondly, the church must not compromise on the biblical qualifications God has for elders. Do you realize that every major cult has happened because of an unqualified man put into office? We just, you, I just showed you the biblical qualifications. One of them was holding to sound doctrine, holding to the teaching of the apostles. Do you think... You think if the church scrutinized Joseph Smith's teachings and compared what he said to uh, what the apostles said, 
Do you think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would have gotten off the ground if they were Bereans? Would the, would the, church, would the Jehovah's Witnesses have done that if they had scrutinized Russell, uh, was it T. Hayes or Taze, Russell Taze? All of these cults started because somebody gave an unqualified man a green pass. Don't compromise on these qualifications. If you do, you are pouring gas upon the foundation of the church. And sooner or later, even though the man is talented, even though the man is charismatic, even though he was the kid of the pastor who founded the church, or he's a celebrity, he knows how to draw people, he's, he was successful in the business world, or, or he sold a bunch of books and he's book smart. Sooner or later, his unqualifications will be a match that will strike something. And that, that church will blow up. Don't compromise. Don't compromise here. Th- those of you who may go on to another church in the future, don't compromise on these qualifications. Ever. Lastly, esteem all the elders God gives to your church. Esteem the guy who preaches on a regular basis. Please. But... but Esteem all of them. Don't ever tell an elder, I like your preaching. I don't like his preaching. I think, I think you, should be, you should be the regular pastor. Don't do that. Don't do that, please. Respect and esteem and appreciate all the elders. As Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, they all care for your souls. They all are those who will give an account for your souls. Respect them. Esteem them. Emulate them. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Hebrews 13, 17. Um, or Hebrews 13, 7. Consider the outcome of their life. Follow their example. Encourage them. Encourage all of them. There's a reason the qualifications are high. There's a reason Peter felt the need to remind the elder that the real reward is not in this life, but is at the end. Encourage them and pray for them. Elders, surprise, elders are not super Christians. Elders are not insensitive or impervious to sin and temptation. Pray for them. Pray for them, pray for their families, pray for their own walk, pray for their ministries. Let's close. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beloved church. Thank you for uh, the privilege it is to be here. Lord, uh, may this office be lifted up in our eyes. May it be sanctified. Um, Let it be blessed And those who hold this office be blessed for the sake of what it does in the church. Help us, help the elders and those who would become elders, help them to effectively lead your church. Help them to effectively and faithfully feed your church. Help them to protect your church and help them to care for your church in a way that is pleasing to you. This is your body. We are your body body.